You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello and welcome to this, the first of our new series of roundtable discussions on hospital care. I'm Rebecca Coombs, features editor for the BMJ, and I'll be hosting these discussions. Now, there is concern amongst our clinical audience about the future of secondary care in the new NHS. Uh, the playing field has changed. Secondary and tertiary centres will have to respond to the new landscape of competition and tendering, but how? And obviously, we've got efficiency savings that we've not seen on this scale before, 4% a year until 2015. Now, joining me today to set out some of the broad areas we'll be discussing over the few months are Yimen Ko, who's um, Chief Executive of Whittington Health in London, Jan Filipkowski, Chief Executive of West Hertfordshire Hospitals NHS Trust. Fergus Gleeson, Divisional Director, Criti- Divisional Director of Critical Care of Theatres, Diagnostics and Pharmacy at Oxford University Hospitals, who's joining us on the phone. Nigel Edwards, Senior Fellow at the King's Fund, the health think tank. Derek Greterex, Chair of South, L- South Devon and Torbay CCG and a GP. And Kate Hall, Policy Advisor, Monitor in London. So to start off the discussion, perhaps you could all share what you think secondary and tertiary care will or perhaps should look like in five years' time. Derek, do you mind if I start off with you on my, uh, yes. my left? Um, I think this very much depends on, on what we're talking about when we talk about secondary care. Um, if we're talking about the body of consultants, I think that's one thing. But if we're talking about the hospital as the secondary care setting, I think that's another. Um, and I think it also depends on where I expect it will be or, or where I hope it will be. Um, I mean, as, as a commissioner, I think uh, we're looking very much in terms of moving away from the idea of hospital as the secondary care setting um, and... Um, Obviously, there will need to be hospitals for some procedures, but that there's a large move towards moving services into a more community-based focus, and I think that can be seen or perceived as a threat by secondary care. Um, some of our secondary care colleagues are kind of embracing this, uh, and others see it as, as being quite a challenging uh, uh, future for them. Mm. Um, I think in terms of the the actual body of consultants themselves and the whole raft of services surrounding secondary care, um, we, we've seen over the years the kind of the rise of uh, of the super specialist and, and uh, the demise, if I what, what I might call the the generalist specialist. Um, uh, and you know, some of my colleagues rather facetiously talk about um, uh, who's the left knee man these days. Um, but um, uh, so I think there's been a move towards more sort of super specialisation, uh, and we've seen a lot of of stuff that used to be done in hospitals now moving into primary care, particularly in the field of uh, chronic disease management. Mm-hmm. So I think that is also seen perceived as a, as perhaps a threat to secondary care. Um, my 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 feeling about the future is that we're we're going to have to see uh, a move. Uh, towards more community-based services and perhaps consultants moving out of the traditional hospital setting into other settings. Um, And that may include moving diagnostic services and other things traditionally done in that setting uh, away from from, um, the the, the traditional uh, place that people would go to. Uh, I think patients are demanding that. Um, and 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 are beginning to expect it. So I think I think there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of sort of refocusing our, our thoughts about what we mean by spe- secondary care services and, and and how those might be provided, mm-hmm. particularly when we're moving into a context of, of more closer collaboration. So you're looking at more community-based secondary care and more super-specialised services in leaner hospitals. I think you're probably right there. Yeah. Okay, Jan, perhaps you could um, fill us in. 
Yeah, let, let me give a different take uh, to, to put a few more things on the table. I, I still, th- I think we'll still have a managed system, not a market. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's not really what it's about, I think we will see significant changes in primary care. Maybe not in five, but certainly ten. It's probably been the most stable, unchanging part of the NHS since its inception. And my sense is it may be an area where we see more change. Um, Let's come on again to specifics. I think, although it may be surprising, we'll see even shorter waits. People, I don't think, will be happy with even the level of waits they have now, even though they're a fraction of what they were 10 or 15 years ago. I think we'll see more personalised appointment making and uh, organised care. And I think we'll see a much greater use of uh, electronic technology in every sort of way, in terms of booking, usage, contacting, and in terms of care delivery. And I think we'll see, certainly within 10 years, a major incursion of robotic type of technology altering the sort of places hospitals are. To do this, we're going to have to spend more on capital compared to revenue, and I think at the moment we're a capital-staffed service, and I think in 10 years that will and will have to change. A couple more things. I think there will be fewer acute hospitals. I'm not sure I agree with uh, all that Derek's saying about the shift, but I think there will be uh, a need to an inevitable concentration into fewer, more complex probably bigger, but certainly more complicated, complex, uh, acute settings. I think we'll see more elective emergency separation. I think that is part of the future. And um, I think that uh, acute and emergency care will still be absolutely at the centre and core of what we do in acute hospitals. Mm-hmm. And, and you, ma'am, would you agree with that? Okay. Um, that's great. Actually, I, I would like to pick off uh, where Jan left, which yes. is acute care in the hospital. Absolutely. I think that in five or even 10, 15 years, we will still continue to need acute intensive care closer to home. Um, we know that the needs are rising in long-term conditions. So the people as they age and as um, multiple morbidities means that people when they come in will not be single disease entities. They will need to have uh, multiple uh, specialists, multidisciplinary teams looking after them. And these people will have to be closer to home than in centralised big hospitals. Um, I wanted also to respond to Derek's uh, point about... um, the generalists. Actually, at the Whittington, we are seeing more people becoming generalists in, in amongst consultants because we cannot afford to have the left knee man and the right knee man. So what we're actually saying that um, even for uh, specialty medical consultants, we're saying, well, you did train as, as a generalist before you became a super specialist. So can we get you to look after acute medical patients or even some acute surgical patients who have medical problems, mm-hmm. even if you were, uh, say, consultant gastroenterologist? So that we get, because if we're moving to the sort of 24-7, seven-day working, we cannot have every different specialty in the hospital seven days a week. It's just not affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, come back to the acute uh, care model, we will be trying to pers- provide more care in the community, but that, from all the evidence that we have had from the Whittington, it is not cheaper. 
because it is decentralization. So you actually get this economies of scale. Um, but it's better for patients. So it's a quality benefit rather than economic benefit so far. Um, what we see is that we will do whatever we need to um, that improves the patient experience, keep people at, at home as far as possible because we know longer term, if you keep people at home, they are less likely to be institutionalized and they are less likely to go into institutional care and social care impact and so on. Um, but they will need to come to the hospital when they need to, when they have an acute problem. And that means the hospital will be much more like a pit stop, like a Formula One pit stop. So you are looked after in the community, but when you come in, you will come in for short bursts of intensive care. You have multiple specialists jumping on you effectively um, and hopefully you should be sorted within 48 hours to maximum 72 and out again and the rest of your care are looked uh, after in the community. Um, on, in terms of electronic patient record, I think that is absolutely the way to go. All of the transformation so far has not really looked at how we streamline um, technology. Uh, Jan talked about capital. Actually, I just want people to share records, primary care, secondary care, community and patients. So I think at a very basic level, if we all share the same communication, same patient records, I think we will get there. Uh, a final point about um, centralization versus localization. When I talk to GPs, and I'll be interested in Derek's point, they are very clear that what they want is not some distance relationship with some super specialist. They want someone local who know about their practice, who they have built a relationship. Texture of relationship is very important to general practice that they can call upon to ask for personal advice when they get a test result. They'll say, what do you think I should do? That sort of thing, that matters. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thanks. You touched upon some important human factors there that I'm sure we'll come back to. Nigel. Yes, I, I agree with that analysis. Um, just a few little facts I think worth sharing. Um, I think it's a little known fact that uh, the UK actually has uh, some of the smallest number of hospitals per thousand population of anywhere in Europe. We've already centralised to a much greater extent than almost any other country other than the, the Netherlands. Um, we also have one of the lowest numbers of hospital beds per thousand. Um, which is uh, uh, So we're uh, already uh, pretty efficient then? Well, uh, that's... That, Yes, but um, uh, we do also seem to have a high proportion of ambulatory care-sensitive admissions. So primary care is not quite doing the job it needs to do, and the, probably the missing component is the division that we've got between specialists who manage chronic disease and primary care. Um, and this is why... Um, uh, so centralising into very big palaces, you know, very small number of hospitals and taking the specialists further away from primary care seems to be, in, uh, 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 really uh, agreeing with him in here, entirely the wrong direction. We need to get the specialists working more closely with, uh, with, uh, 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 with, with primary care doctors. Um, uh, that means that uh, we've got a situation at the moment, I think, where the hospitals are either uh, are not really specialists, are too specialist to deal with many of the patients with multi-morbidity that were thrown at them, or they're not specialist enough to deal with the very rare um, and, and, and the, the relatively small number of areas where we do know that there is a uh, return between quality and volume. There's, there seems, apart from stroke and, 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 and ST elevated MI, there doesn't seem much evidence that uh, any of the hospitals in the UK fall below the, min- the level at which you get quality returns from volume in general medicine. Um, if you, there's not much evidence at all, but where there is, we seem to have we have pretty high volume units by international standards. 
so the New England Journal of Medicine quotes 500 heart failure cases a year. As, as, now even allowing for the fact that we probably have a much lower admission threshold than the US, um, uh, as only the, I think the Isle of Wight um, has fewer admissions uh, than, than the maximum number where you get a return to quality. So um, if we try and uh, sum up uh, uh, what I've heard, which I, I would agree, um, uh, a, a service which is more capable of dealing with patients with multiple conditions it can mobilise specialists both to support them in the hospital when they need that but but to be working much more closely with their colleagues in primary care that requires primary care itself to adapt to be working at a scale where it's worth having big investment in a shared electronic record mm-hmm. putting diagnostics in to support them uh, bringing in other professionals to uh, to provide uh, support uh, to, to those teams um, uh, by all means centralising the, uh, the the stuff which uh, uh, needs to be centralised, but I think it does leave us with a, a really interesting question about two uh, specialties where uh, uh, we have a problem. Um, the first is acute medicine, which is high volume and and there's some benefits for it being local, um, and there don't seem to be many benefits from centralising it. Um, and the other is obstetrics. Uh, where I, I am told, and I need to check this, that there is not a single unit in France with more than the minimum number of deliveries that we say we need to run an obstetric service. Uh, now, it may well be the rest of Europe is getting this wrong, mm-hmm. uh, but I do tend to think that if you're the one out of step, then you, we ought to think about this. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a real issue about whether we can make the argument to, to close 50 or, or so obstetric units across the UK mm-hmm. um, and whether we can actually demonstrate that that will produce better outcomes. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a really interesting, uh, interesting challenge there. So smaller, more acute, uh, 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 f- staffed by generalists, um, and um, probably, as I, I would agree with Jan, there will be fewer of them, um, but they're going to have to be much better integrated with nursing homes, residential homes, uh, community services and social care and with their colleagues in primary care than they have been in the past. Great, thank you. Now, Kate, um, you're coming from Monitor, so you may have a slightly different perspective. You're very much, your organisation is very much the centre of this new vision um, of health services as, as set out in the, in, in the, in the Act. Perhaps you give us your thoughts. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, not to regurgitate what everybody else has said, but I think, um, I think it's almost inevitable that there will be less acute hospitals than there are now. And I agree with everybody else's comments about the fact that there will be a shift from secondary care to community care, but picking up from Eamon's point about the economics. But I think from a patient care perspective and a patient um, what patients want, they want to be treated uh, closer to home. I think the challenge is that, so with the provider arms of PCTs, the majority of provider arms have gone into mental health organisations, which um, I'm not saying is a wrong thing, but I think that there's an opportunity for acute and acute community and mental health to all work together in terms of like enhancing whole pathways of care and some of the physical and comorbidities and some of the kind of wider health economy um, Aspects. I think we have to be really mindful that a high percentage of patients that are treated in hospitals do not need to be in hospitals. Um, there's not only financial issues over that, but there's obviously quality of care issues. Um, we need to look at NHS estate. There's a high percentage of, I think it's over 10% of NHS estate that is being unused at the moment. And the other percentage isn't necessarily being utilised terribly well. And I think... I'm quite a fan, and I haven't done the maths about this, but of the 24-7 working, I think um, 
there's we have to look at how we provide care over seven days a week um and it's not just have here. do you not think of though of um uh, we apply uh, it's a very common feature in the way we plan health services we take a rule for one thing and we apply it to everything so actually there's quite a lot of things that don't happen between 10 at night and six in the morning so I think there's a, there are some things which absolutely have to be 24-7, yep. but there yep. are other things yes. where, you know, running a 18, 18, seven, you know, 18 7 would, would work that, for... That's OK. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. cannot take away the fact that if you're admitted for a hip replacement on a Thursday or a Wednesday, that your length of stay is going to be longer than if you're admitted on a Monday. I mean, that's a sweeping generalisation yes. I appreciate. But that's the seven bit, though. I agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Can I come in on that? Because I, I, I agree with you if you go, to say, 24... 20- Four seven is an absolute. That is nonsense. Very little, and much less happens in the silent hours of the night. But uh, I think there is evidence that we need to and can move much nearer to that. Yeah. And that's where I, I think I perhaps differ from you, Nigel. I, I think you need scale to move to that. And uh, again, it's anecdotal, but my own experiences in moving two DGHs into one, we're able to. S- uh, we're able to staff much more intensively for longer hours with the effect that we have a shorter length of stay. And in our case, we've also reduced mortality. So there is some evidence that uh, doing those things does help both outcome and uh, outputs and efficiency. I think there's still an out-of-hours risk in terms of quality of care. And if you read patient complaints and relative complaints and, and kind of... I guess the the softer evidence for want of a better word but there's some hard evidence about things like um, babies being born that don't make it that are born out of hours in the infrastructure that's that's in place or not in place and so I do think there's a something to consider in in that respect as well. Sorry just on that one there, there are very clear standards if you go over a certain number of deliveries you must have higher levels of cover over more hours so that suggests that nationally we already have a if you go over six thousand, then you should have full 24 7 cover okay any other any other points you want to get through fergus let me bring you in um thank you um what what will secondary care or treasury care look like in five to ten years as far as you're concerned okay well i agree with bits of most of what has been said i think the first thing to say is I think there will be increased provision. So there will be more providers and they will be providing different bits, both in hospital and outside the hospital. I think that will lead to a change in public and medical perception of how healthcare will be provided. So this will be a journey to get there that's driven by the journey as well as the ideals that have started it. I think it'll have increased cost because we will actually be doing more because we have the ability to do more. I think that will be better for healthcare in the long run, but it will be at greater cost. I think to a certain extent, it will become more fragmented, but that will lead to advantages in some aspects where some components of care are held back because they are joined to other components of healthcare. So I think that too will also be an advantage, and I think that will lead to improved care. I think not only will there be... um, have to be more linkages between the multiple providers, I think it will lead to multiple linkages between hospitals and smaller hospitals. I I think eventually the public perception may change, but I think it's going to take a bit of time to think we're going to get better healthcare by closing down your local hospital. The public don't seem ready yet. So 
So that will have to change. But I think the small hospitals will work out what their core services are and make sure they provide those well and will link to bigger hospitals either to help them provide them or to automatically transfer patients that get referred into them for that care. So I think that was a complete change. I don't believe that there will be any left acute hospitals because the British won't accept that. Um, and I do think that we will end up... Fergus, Fergus, I'm afraid I'm, I'm losing you there, unfortunately. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll continue our discussion and we'll, we'll bring you back in as soon as we can. So maybe just take up the point about more providers coming in and, and, and whether any of you would dispute that. I think you talked about there being still being a managed system, not a market. I, Kate, you might have something interesting I, I, to say. I guess that. there may be. I, I think there may well be providers who are um, subcontracted. We, we may contract out more things like pathology, radiology, not just uh, the uh, supporting services. Um, I guess at the margins, but my view is it will be at the margins uh, full providers coming in. Mm-hmm. We, we have no sign of a provider who can provide DGH services. Uh, they're providing uh, an element of uh, uh, elective services on a very uh, menu basis, and we'll see if Hinchingbrook leads anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anybody else around the table have anything to say about that? I mean, Kate, I mean, I thought it was interesting that Jan saying about we still see a managed service system, not a market. And obviously this, this was a, a focus of, of, of much concern during the passage of the bill, uh, the effect of competition. Yeah, um, yes. Um, I mean, it's difficult to actually know what's going to happen. I mean, I think I pretty much agree with Jan. I think there will be some entrants, but that do small dedicated things I don't think it's going to change that significantly and I think the overall percentage will remain very small I mean the competition discussion is a is a different one which you might want to hold or or move into now but um I think you know Monitor obviously has some uh, a significant role going forwards in both the kind of um preventing anti-competitive behavior and also promoting integration which I know there's obviously press about this week in terms of some of the conflicts of that but uh that might be a later question. Fergus's point that, there's a, that the smaller hospitals will need to be part of a wider network if they're going to have any any future is absolutely right. Um, so um, we may see systems, which might mean it's quite difficult for large new players to enter. It'd be interesting to hear Fergus's view on, on on where he thinks the biggest shift might be. Would it just be in niche providers of you know, laboratory services, pathology, um, radiology, or um, perhaps bits of elective surgery, or will there be a a, big, a bigger shift. It'd be, be, be good to explore that, I think. Fergus, do you want to come in on that point? Yeah, uh, thank you. I'm sorry about the signal problem. I, I, I think it's going to start for certain. I think it's, it's um, fairly easy to, even in a small way, start providing outsourced diagnostic services, and it will grow from there. Um, there's no reason at all why... We've already got a bit of outsourced physio that will have more outsourced physio and we'll move on to have outsourced orthopedic, provision orthopedics, etc. So I think it's just the start of a multiplicity of providers, but also a change in the working practice of the doctors so that they understand that they will have to work differently and potentially work for multiple employers or themselves potentially. 
what's interesting about this is how this will all look for the patient. We've had a, 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 one of our readers got in touch with us about the discussion we're having today. He's a, a consultant medical oncologist and he says um, yeah, the, the problem with having multiple service providers is it's a kind of contradiction of that collaborative approach when you're, say, a, patient, a, a cancer patient. So some of the patients are having initial imaging tests done by non-NHS providers um, and the transfer of images discussed in a multidisciplinary team meeting can be unreliable and slow. Um, which is an important point when a patient is on a sort of timed pathway towards diagnosis. That's a common statement. Nobody ever says that problems with America is the multiplicity of imaging providers means that the service has got worse in terms of being slow. I, I think it ends up being too fast with unnecessary tests potentially because of a lack of coordination. I think it will lead to an improvement within the provision that we already currently have. So I'm not sure it's a one direction all bad. And has that worked in your various trusts? Um, well, I was just reflecting on, I, I think, um, Fergus's comments as well as Kate's and, and Nigel. Um, I, I agree that we will have to work in closer integration with other providers. Uh, the Whittington Health is both an, a DGH as well as community services. So we got that part of the pathway integrated. But we also have to integrate with the rest of the system. For example, we already do with stroke, heart attack and vascular, where any patients with those problems are immediately di re redirected to the specialist centres at UCLH and, and elsewhere, mm -hmm. um, and, and cancer. So I, I think that what, what we need to do is to make sure that as patients move between providers, that there isn't unnecessary delay, but and, and actually there's somebody in charge of their care Recently, we had um, a case of, actually it's an inquest, where someone with uh, a cancer moved between three hospitals mm -hmm. uh, where they are looked after by one, operated on the other, and received their chemotherapy on, in another place. And each, at each part of the pathway, as they move around the system, mm -hmm. um, they added a delay of one to two weeks. So, you know, when you have three providers, mm -hmm. it could be very complicated. Um, so I think that maybe there's a niche for new system players who are care integrators. Just something for thought. Um, I also wanted to um, talk about the future where, um, in terms of vertical integration with other providers, but horizontal integration with mental health, which you talk about, Rebecca, uh, and with social care. Uh, we are already exploring that because recently there is, um, there is the evidence that for every one pound you spend on uh, mental health, you get five pounds back. And our mental health providers and us are already talking about working together to make sure that uh, mental health patients get physical care and physical um, um, patients in the hospital and in the community get appropriate mental health care. So there, there are scope, but somebody needs to take all of that um, uh, on board and somebody needs to take charge because we're all very different providers. There is a risk of fragmentation because nobody is in charge. I mean, this is interesting because all of you mentioned, all of you, when we talked about what, what statutory care will look like in five, ten years, is that move to the community. But it's how that will happen, how the money will get out there. And the same correspondent, the same medical oncologist said to us that discharge from hospital, the patients that have gained all they can from us, is, is being delayed because out-of-hospital provision is inadequate. How do we um, incentivise put incentives in the system so the money does get out into the community. Can, can I come in? I, 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 uh, I think I only agreed that at the margins. I, I don't think that the, 
balance will change a great deal. I think that uh, there will continue to be a major need for secondary care in acute hospitals. There will be fewer but bigger. But uh, uh, for all my career, I've been told that this is going to happen and every year the number of patients going into acute hospitals Mm -hmm. increases. I was told it last year, I was told it the year before and I was told it the year before that. And we've had a 15% increase in acute admissions, partly because a DGH close to us is closing, but nonetheless, uh, it continues to increase. So I don't think it's a matter of moving money out. If we're going to do that, then we're going to have to put more money into the pot. That's because the pattern across Europe is that the community services have grown uh, through extra investment rather yes. than shifting resources from hospitals, um, which is a problem because there's not a great deal of sign there will be any additional investment. And uh, it's increasingly likely that uh, within five or six years, all that local governments will be able to do is buy the minimum amount of social care for, the, for people with virtually no assets. There was a major... Uh, I think a major crisis that we're not really talking about, which will make it even harder to discharge people from hospital in future. So there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, there is a bit of a problem here. We don't have the growth to make that shift. That means that hospitals have to shut if you want to make that shift in advance of the services being there. Um, and the experience of that is not a happy one. And Derek, are you confident that CCGs can drive that change in a way that PCGs maybe didn't before? I think it's certainly going to be a responsibility for CCGs because, uh, I mean, Eamon was talking about who can actually do drive this process of collaboration and actually shifting um, sort of perceptions in the system. And I think that's going to be a role for CCGs, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, uh, and, and issues like sharing records. I mean, there's, I, I, I take what Nigel says, and there's a huge demographic problem which is building up that, as you say, we, we, we kind of are ignoring a little bit at the moment uh, in terms of um, the fact that we will need to put in extra resources because they, the, the needs will, will, will grow. Um, but I still think there is it, it's clearly some, some sort of, um, if you like, waste of resources where, where, where because of the, the, the sort of gulf between different parts of the system. Uh, and even, think, I mean, our patients expect that we know what's gone on when they've been in hospital. And yet, clearly, a lot of the time that doesn't happen, certainly not immediately. Um, and and they, they believe that there is a, a, a sort of sh- a, a sharing or, or an access to, to records between parts of the system, which doesn't exist now. And, and I think, you know, the, the NHS has singly failed to bring in a single care record. Um, despite the, the vast amounts of money that have been spent on this, and, and yet uh, it, it clearly would, would, would have huge benefits. And, and certainly in our local area, we're looking towards trying to get more sort of shared resources between and shared information between all different parts of the system, whether that be community, secondary or primary care. Um, uh, and and, um, and, and that, the sort of the C word, the collaboration uh, between whichever bits of the system is, is the only way in which we're going to meet this challenge at the moment if there are no more resources coming in. Uh, Can can I make another, which is to say, actually, there is a very obvious area where we could move more care into the community, and that is post-acute care. And it may not be true in Torbay, but it's true in most parts of the country that hospitals have significant numbers of patients who are sitting in beds and no longer need acute care. And it is because of the inability of the post-acute care system to take them in a timely and appropriate fashion. So we, and I've, I've written about this elsewhere, but we, we would estimate that at any one time, probably between 8 and 10% of our patients do not need to be in our hospital, and yet we cannot get them out. So there's a huge waste of resource there. Um, 
We are not paid for them, so it puts extra pressure on us. We're paid at the typical episode. And yet, uh, particularly for social care, who are paid on a cash-limited basis, it is in their interest to limit the rate at which people are discharged. Mm -hmm. And we need to change that. Um, If we did that, we could reduce the size of acute hospitals and we could save the nation some money. But we will have to change the system. And one way we do it is actually aligning the incentives to do that, which are at the moment chaotically, randomly disaligned. Okay, Can I just come, in, come in, in I mean, I've got a couple of points, but just on the back of uh, Jan's previous comment, there are examples from around the country now where the provider arms of PCTs have gone into acute and the shift in terms of ability to discharge in a timely manner has almost changed overnight and, and because it's one kind of team, if you like, managing both and it's quite stark and it is quite clear. Um, I mean, that's a wider integration and it... it it goes back to something I was saying at the beginning about mental health, community health and acute health kind of in, in uh, um, and looking at whole pathways. The one thing I just wanted to come in on from a monitor point of view is we obviously in the new world have um, a duty to promote and protect the interests of patients and we also have a duty to involve patients as, as is appropriate and get you know feedback from mm-hmm. them and obviously that's a big piece of work and we're working out how to do that. We have a duty to promote integration um, and there are some challenges with that but in terms of people working cross boundaries I mean I think I think it was Derek that made the point about I think actually everybody's made the point about clinicians working in a different way and kind of looking a lot in a in a in a looking at how we're providing care in a completely different way but including how individual clinicians do but I just wanted to add from the monitor point of view we we have to consider um, that there needs to be a shift because I think patients are asking and want to have um, a more seamless more seamless journey and I think just on the point from the, the person that wrote in about the multiple providers it's a fair challenge and multiple providers as Yumin said with her cancer example every time there's a potential different provider there's a potential gap or risk of delay or something going wrong but there are even within one organisation so I think actually um, it doesn't have to be. It can be stream, streamlined. And I think the one thing that a number of people have touched upon is the technology and the information that is associated with this because actually a lot of the time it's the information that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And we've got another uh, comment here from a consultant dermatologist who's concerned about what safeguards there will be um, as patients go into the community to make sure that, that quality is not compromised. <laughs> that, um, that it's going to be too, a very fragmented service for patients. I mean, that's a. It depends. It depends on what what they mean. But by that, I mean it. Obviously, it can be fragmented, but acute care can be fragmented. It's not. It's not straightforward. I mean, I think there are some aspects of very good community care, and I don't know you, mean I'm sure will want to to come in. But there are some also some aspects where it's clear that a lot of work does need to be done. I think picking up from Nigel's point, I don't think it's a. Uh, let me go back. Acute care has had a lot of focus. Acute care has had, you know, been target driven and things like A&E I don't think would ever have happened unless we'd have had a target. I don't think A&E waiting times would have happened if we had um, waited to be kind of clinically led on that, if you like. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I do think there's something about giving it some focus and some inputs. I think it has been the uh, poor relation to some degree. Um, I want to bring Fergus back in here on the, on the telephone. I think we'll, we'll look we'll look about we'll look forward to 
Looking back, what you're doing to respond and prepare for these challenges uh, and picking up on some of the, the themes we've already discussed about um, I know 24-7 working, moving services in the community, becoming more efficient, even shorter rate weights. Uh, Fergus, what's your service doing to, to respond and prepare for the new challenges? Okay, so we, we uh, first of all, I'd like to agree with the fact that we do need to prove the link with social care and patient discharges. And that's something that we're driving by formally trying to work out a shared financial risk related to um, patient discharge when they no longer need acute care. Um, and that works in both parties' interests and as well as the NHS's and the patient. So we're, we're doing that. We're linking, trying to forge links with our adjacent smaller hospitals and working out how to help them um, provides the specialist services in a in a seamless fashion um, so that, that they don't feel under threat that we're going to take away their easy work and make them financially not viable because actually we can't cope with all their standard work and we feel that we should be providing more specialist work to help them. And we're also looking at the marketplace and looking at what's if you're an external provider and going to bid, what you might be looking at um, challenging challenge our provision of and seeing whether actually we would be better off not providing it. It is this, the hospitals have got sort of hung up on, they must either do everything or bits of everything and they can do things better than everybody else. And that's not necessarily correct. So we're actually looking at some of our diagnostic services, do we need to provide them? Would they be better provided by other providers? And would they be cheaper as well? Because they may be able to put different staff grades in in the way that we couldn't, get a greater throughput in the way that we couldn't. Um, so we're actively looking at trying to improve what we provide because of the ongoing and future changes. Do you think some, do you think some secondary care um, clinicians uh, feel... Um, nervous about the threat of other providers, particularly from GPs, for example, uh, this dermatologist was saying that they, there's a, a group of local GPs that are putting together a bid to to run the dermatology um, service in their area, and she feels that you know they their primary care they've been doing this for a long time, um, they uh, you know they, they they're better at these bids than than, than they are. Um, how do you do you think there's a yeah, I would say I completely agree with that, that the medical and the paramedical profession, so in fact everybody within the hospitals, I think is threatened to a greater or lesser extent. And if, we, if everybody sat there and did nothing and waited for this to happen to us, one, that would be wrong, and two, they would be right to be threatened. But we don't provide, I, I personally don't think we provide as much health care as, as is necessary I have never, I've been qualified since 83, I've never seen the requirement for healthcare go down. And so I, I, I think that people will just have to learn that it's going to be a different model and some of it will be better. And where it's not better, we need to identify it and point out why it's not better and how it should be done differently. So they are right, they, will, they are threatened, the doctors are threatened and the nursing staff and radiographers and the managers are threatened. But I, I don't think with, with justification. 
But what about this this kind of this this issue that secondary care isn't any good at tenders? Anybody got anything to say on that one? Yeah, I, I well, that is absolutely true. That's uh, but that's because they're not used to it. They sort of they we've we've had a an attitude of build it and they will come sort of thing, and the, the consultants have have had that attitude all along that they they'll start providing a service, it'll grow, it'll grow, etc. And well, I mean, we do need to look at when you at how you respond to a tender. And actually, once you start looking at these things, you can do them better. You can make better use of your resource and your facility and your staff. Um, so secondary care is, is notoriously bad at it. And I was just writing a brief for some of my groups saying that we have to be ready and we actually have to be realistically ready rather than say, well, we've been providing it and therefore we should continue to provide it. We need evidence, quality, data, quality, data that shows that we provide a quality service and how we are changing it. Yemen, Jan, anything to kind of see if you um, furrowed brows around the table? I don't entirely agree. I mean, we have not a huge experience of tendering and uh, my view would be practice makes perfect and... Uh, I could give examples where we've out-tendered private bidders uh, to get uh, urgent care centres in the locality, uh, where we're out-tendering on pathology uh, for what we've been asked to do. And I could give examples, but I, for obvious reasons, won't go into detail, where we've tendered rather poorly. Um, So I, I don't think there's an intrinsic difficulty. I think if we do it more, we'll do it well. And yes, okay, there can be a bit of complacency, but... Uh, that really soon goes when you feel threatened and uh, I think uh, clinicians are pretty smart and they know when they've got to tender properly and in my experience is they do. Can I come in? I mean, I, I can't talk about the politics of why things are given elsewhere because it's above my pay grade. But um, when we go out to tender, it seems to me that very often the NHS tenders to provide the service in a similar fashion to that in which they are currently providing it. And I, I do agree that once we learn the ropes, we will start to tender better. Nigel, would you agree with any of this? Um, I- I certainly agree with the last point. There's an extraordinary record of the the, the uh, commissioners trying to specify in detail how services should be provided mm-hmm. in a way that, if you think about how other industries work, is actually bizarre. You know, the, 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 if, if you, uh, you, you don't tell Toyota how to build a car, you tell what the output specification is and they will then build it. Uh, whereas you know, the, it, it's not at all uncommon to find commissioners in, 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 in this country trying to specify staffing levels and the detail of Absolutely. how the job should be done. So you'll get no innovation um, uh, through, no. Uh, 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 through that. It's, it, uh, the NHS actually has a, an extraordinarily bad record um, if you talk to the people who supply it um, in terms of how it goes about procurement and tendering. It's, it's, oh. it's a, a notoriously poor customer that uh, tries to micromanage its suppliers um, and it needs to change its habits. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with Nigel that we, there needs to be a sort of shift in the way that we look at, um, uh, you know, sort of commissioning services. Um, uh, and I think it comes back to, to, to uh, something that uh, Fergus said about, about changing perceptions. I mean, there are a lot of people feeling threatened by, by what's going on. Um, and I think, um, particularly in secondary care, that, you know, the idea that a group of GPs may set up a, a rival dermatology service. Uh, and I think actually it comes back again to the word I've used 
mentioned before, which is collaboration, which is is very much if we can actually drop some of those uh, feelings of threat and actually work in a much more joined up way of thinking, um, then I think we, we, we've actually got more potential there to to to, to, to get better outcomes. Um, I mean, we, we, we've got a, 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 an overarching in our area, an overarching clinical cabinet, which is primary, secondary and community care um, colleagues who, who, who work together to, to kind of de- de- develop an overall strategy, but, but also at working at, at sort of individual speciality levels, we have primary secondary care groups that we, we call clinical pathway groups, which actually uh, look at how we can reconfigure services. There's been some very interesting stuff coming out of that as a collaborative project, which is, has, has, has sometimes has been small changes, sometimes more radical changes in the way in which we actually uh, configure the services. And, and, and I think because it's been dealt with in that environment, it's not been seen so much as a threat. I mean, I think there's still a lot of sensibilities out there, but it's not been seen so much of a threat. And I think that, that gives us a huge potential for, for re, sort of for reshaping things and actually trying to move away from this 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 feeling threatened but it, it is a huge um, sort of uh, sensibility to get over and, and, and a feeling that consultants have that that that, that uh, we're out to get them which I'm sure we're not we're out to, to sort of provide the best service for for patients um, I mean I don't know what, what others think about that well, I, I would yeah. I, I don't think we can get too cozy about this um, we're having a major uh, tendering of pathology services um, and uh, it is a threat because a lot of people may well lose their jobs uh, people who've worked in healthcare for 20 30 40 years so I, I think we just have to be realistic that uh, there is threat and there will be further threats as we uh, look at certain services and uh, my view is we need to be really clear that it's uh, worth the amount of angst that's caused than if it is then we must do it, but uh, it will cause a lot of angst and disruption in many cases. Can I respond to two points about tendering, one on dermatology and one on pathology? I think that starting with the pathology centralisation, there is a shift towards factory-style pathology and so Mm -hmm. on. Well, some places in London have already done that, and what we found is that when you do that, Actually, it's very hard to train the next generation of pathologists in terms of SPR training and so on. So um, the Whittington is, is exploring, like the rest of the country, how we might centralise. But also the GP's feedback was very clear. We want to have a local service so that we can discuss the test results with you. We don't want to talk to a call centre somewhere that have no idea about you know how our practice works and so on. So come back to the relationship. Now, the other factor is about um, tendering dermatology. I have some experience in my previous life as a commissioner about tendering for dermatology. I think it's absolutely important that the standards are clear. So if you set the standard, then you know competition should enable you to pick the, I suppose, the lowest price because then it is price competition. But in the past, when we did that, what we found was that um, we, we put it out to tender when I was at the PCT and we had numerous providers uh, competing for it and the tenders were won by private providers, but they couldn't meet those standards despite giving a commitment that they would because at the sort of prices, they just couldn't make it pay. And, and, and it actually, if you look at the standards, for example, around skin cancer, the clinical guidelines were very clear. Skin cancer treatment can only happen in the hospital. So what you might find is that you have a local dermatology service, you still have to run a parallel service and you are paying twice. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened, I think that commissioners are driven to, to threaten to, to, to tender when they feel that secondary care is inflexible and, you know, that's a threat. If we tender out, uh, you do this or else. Um, 
in the last year, we have been working with our CCGs on this. And, and in dermatology, what they have said is, if you have those clinics in the community, and I just want to support Nigel's point, is they will specify the input down to the grades of staff who must run the service to how many, you know, rather than focus on outcomes. But we are, we are being paid at only... Uh, three quarters of what it would cost us to um, in the hospital. So actually, to run the community clinics costs us more because we, we just don't get that efficiency, but we are reimbursed at a lower rate. And and it might be that if that's the direction of travel, so the CCGs get great value because you get the same providers, same consultants, but working in the community, mm-hmm. but at a, a huge discount. Mm-hmm. I, I also want to take uh, bring up the other point around the, the cent- uh, about... Um, the GPs, I think the, um, the point that Derek made about the GPs uh, at the centre of holding the patient's care and CCGs holding the ring, I think that is right. I think that is the ambition of, of the government, that CCGs will actually make some of this happen. Um, well, I think that you know, we are at, begin- at the beginning of the journey and, and it's early days for CCGs. Um, but if you're working in an increasingly fragmented uh, health economy, it is difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've moved on to competition a bit here, haven't we, about, um, you know, is it a threat and opportunity? And I think all of you said it's both. Um, and Kate, you said that uh, there's a negative perception of competition, but clinicians respond well to some forms. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's obviously been lots of uh, noise in the system about competition. And obviously we have, um, as I was saying, a duty to prevent anti-competitive behaviour when it's detrimental to the patient there's obviously the balance between the competition and integration angle but I do think competition you know competition exists in many other forms and it's not necessarily a negative thing I think if it's taken out of context and kind of the wide extremes then it could be but I think that as with everything there's a balance and there's an opportunity um, to improve the quality of services and the efficiency of services with some healthy competition um, I think when we, you know, I encourage people when we um, go out to consultation about our various license conditions to input into it. And I uh, keep saying back uh, 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 to my colleagues that when we do consult, we have to make it in uh, into language that people understand because otherwise people won't respond. And then it's uh, but it's important that we do get people's feedback. Um, But it's, you know, it's an opportunity as long as it's uh, appropriate, I guess. yeah, I was going to say. I think a different view. Well, I, th- I think I think um, you know if we if we view competition as a political or philosophical sort of aspiration, then I think it, it, it's the sort of thing that can be abused. Um, because um, my feeling is that competition can be used where appropriate if it gives added value um, to what you're trying to set out to achieve. If it's just done for the sake of competition, mm-hmm. then I, th- I think actually that that's not the right use of it. Um, and, and, and again, you know, I, I, I'm. You know, if I put my cards on the table, I, I'm, I'm not in favour of competition, outright competition per se, in, in, in managing health services. I, I think uh, a much more collaborative, work, working together approach um, it, with, with, with our colleagues is, is actually my preferred way. We will be bound to do some competitive stuff because that's what the regulations will, will say in certain situations. Um, and there is a real tension between this sort of, uh, particularly for Monitor, to, to actually promote integration at the same time look at the the, the competition issue mm. um, and, and I think 
there is some tension there which, which hasn't been resolved yet. And, and, and over the coming years, uh, coming years, I think we'll actually see that sort of playing out. And I suspect there will be challenges towards uh, some of the working that's being done. Um, but there are examples of that in other industries. And don't get me wrong, I'm not an expert on other industries at all. But, um, you know, I don't know, take maybe something like Apple, for example. There'll be lots of different components to... to um, you know, that comes to produce uh, an apple, uh, whatever. But at the same time, those various components from different other industries will also be working on other uh, software. And so it's, it's, it can be taken out of context, but it also can be, I mean, you know, it's, if it's taken out of context, and as you say, just a kind of um, uh, broad brush approach, that's never going to work. I mean, there's a balance and we have to be mindful of the regional variations. I mean, most of us are kind of London or near to London based. That's a very different, sorry, you're, you're not, but it's a very different scenario in London to what it would be in, let's say, the North East or the North West or even the South. And so there's the balance between the competition angle and then the integration angle. And so one size doesn't necessarily fit all, which is why it's so important to get it right and make sure it isn't just a kind Part of... Part of the problem cross- has been the NHS has been very bad at confusing means and ends. Yeah. Um, and having been told that you have to do competition, it then does competition without necessarily yeah. yes, displaying very much point. thought about it. In the same way, and I, I work with lots of places who say uh, we have to involve the third sector, and you say why, and they say, well, because that's government policy, yeah. um, uh, or we have to move care into the community, and that's the objective, not improving outcomes or improving convenience for Absolutely. patients. Is simply to, yep. uh, so. I think yes. uh, you know. There's just I think uh, across this whole area. And, and uh, this also applies, I think, to decisions about centralisation, about the planning of hospitals. There is a shortage of evidence and a lack of humility um, I, yeah. and uh, a need for much more experimentation mm-hmm. with proper evaluation and mm-hmm. much more thoughtfulness in how the evidence is applied. Yeah. I, the question is, do we have much competition? I don't think we do because we're debarred from having price competition. So in what sense do we have competition without price competition? We have, normally, if you offer a service, you can price it. We can't price it. The price is determined irrespective of our costs. Mm. And we have price manipulation. And the biggest, and for me, one of the most concerning things is the uh, diktat that we have uh, uh, for for any increases in emergency care. We are mandated to be paid at 30% of the tariff absolutely absurd from our point of view we don't generate 30 percent of our costs actually with a full hospital our marginal costs are about 120 percent not 30 percent however if we knew we were going to get 100 percent we could plan to expand and we happen to have an outstandingly good field leading emergency service which would naturally expand if we could compete but the incentive is to turn people away which we Mm. cannot do I think also, um, and it's back to this thing about are we going to see more competition, and I think not. We've been talking about specialist services. Most, there are some services we would like to provide that we're effectively debarred from doing because they are designated services. What kind of services would they be? Um, say, specialist neonatal intensive care, level three. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've got the second biggest uh, maternity unit in the southeast. And we haven't got a level three unit, and we can't have one. And we'd have to take a huge risk, make a massive investment, and then someone would say, No, we didn't agree you could do it. We're the commissioners, 
Uh, and commissioner is quite an interesting word. Sort of for me, it has Soviet connotations. You know, we don't have commissioners in the retail sector; we have uh, customers who buy things. Mm. And so, Derek, do you think any of this is going to improve with CCGs in the driving seat? I mean, I think the advantage that CCGs have is that there will be clinicians sort of leading the process or they're, they're at the, mm. in the process. So we actually have contact with, with the people that we're actually providing these services for. So we have a feel as to, as to what, what, their, what their perception of how things are for them uh, works. Um, and I think that brings us a, uh, mm. a, a, different, a different view on it. Uh, in terms of what Nigel's saying, you know, uh, I, th- I think actually looking at what, this actually provides for the patient in terms of any particular service and, and whether it benefits the patient is important. So what the outcomes are, not necessarily the process that gets us there. Um, and, and, and that will include things like, is it convenient? Now, now not everything can be convenient. You know, there are super specialist services that have to be provided in the specialist centre. Uh, but there, uh, but as, as everybody said around here, there are many acute services that actually don't need to be in a specialist centre and actually would be much better provided in a local unit nearer to home. Um, and, you know, coming from a relatively rural community, that's actually very important to my local population so I'm, I'm hoping that you know rather than it being sort of nhs managers who may be working with 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 you know the best one in the world but don't have daily contact with with patients um ccgs who will have a significant number of their senior management team who who do have that sort of contact will hopefully ha- bring that different perspective that is much more patient focused and, and the outcomes and for how you pay- measure yeah. that yeah that's right um and um you know, we will get the feedback about how things are going on a daily basis because patients will come and tell us when they see us in surgeries. And, and I think that's a very powerful feedback. It is, although, of course, the GPs in Mid-Staffordshire entirely missed what was happening. Mm. So there is, a, um, because some of these things, the signals are too weak for an individual GP. I think there's still a need for a population. Uh, what we, we, we mustn't lose is that is people who can look at the whole population. Um, yeah, absolutely, uh, and, I agree with that. And, and, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's, it's mixing the two, isn't it? It's actually having that wider perspective and being able to pick up not, not from the background noise in the system that, that actually is worrying, yeah. as well as, uh, and actually it, it may be that, that, you know, we have to have systems of pooling uh, concerns, you know, small concerns raised by individual GPs and then actually looking for trends as they come across the system and I think certainly PCTs in the past have been very bad at doing that hopefully we can learn from that and put systems in place that will enable us to do that it's a real it it, it is going to be very difficult Uh, but but this this these it all comes down to communication doesn't it between different parts of the organization and how you pull that that huge body of knowledge and resource into something that actually means something and actually Gives us gives us a, 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 a sort of a feel, a, a barometer of what's going on. And Fergus, can I bring you in here? Anything you'd like to add here about improving the communication between different parts of the organisation? Yeah, obviously that's absolutely key. I'd like to go back to one comment, which was um, if we are going to have competition, that the one thing that we do need to do is measure the qu- clinical quality of the services that are provided. And we need to agree how we're going to measure and what we're going to measure up front. Otherwise, it will be a cost-based exercise, and I think that will lead to poor care. I think technology is going to enable us to communicate more readily anyway. I mean, we have multiple providers of telephone services. We communicate with each other. So I think that sort of the aspects of data transfer will, over time, take care of themselves. But we do need more clinical liaison. Um, and I loved the comment about we don't have commissioners of retail. I completely agree with that, by the way, just to let you know. 
I just want to quickly cover this issue of integration, which we, we, we've touched on throughout this, about, you know, is it inevitable? And, and, and some of you just said no. Um, it, how do we make it happen? I mean, I mean well, Can we just pause to ask what we mean by it? Because it's a word that's sort of thrown about it's jargonistic, without isn't anyone it? And really I... defining what it is. And, and, and it's often interpreted as some kind of organisation, because the NHS is really actually more of a laboratory for organisational uh, design than the healthcare system. Um, it's often um, interpreted as some form of organisational solution. And I think what we really mean by it is care coordination, so that the different take the the Apple analogies that the different components on the circuit board all talk to each other in a way that's uh, that's compatible Absolutely. and that uh, the patient has a journey through that system um, that, uh, uh, that where things are not repeated where there is proper coordination and communication uh, between the, between the different parts so you can take out the the waste and, and uh, problems that come from poor, poor coordination and I, I do suspect that we may find that increasingly the healthcare systems at the moment by components rather than the complete patient journey. So I can see a, a shift over time to actually people trying to, to commission the, the, you know, the, the full care for the patient over a period of time the, rather than the, buying the different bits from different providers. In, in my more pessimistic moments, I would put the question differently. I would say, is disintegration inevitable? And... Uh, in my more pessimistic moments, I think it is. And do you think it could be because we're just going to get more, not less, foundation trusts? And no, no, no. It's. It, I think it's the point Kate made. We, we have to have. We have to have seamless care. The disintegration is at the boundaries where, where we transfer or fail to transfer patients and do it in a continuous way. So, at, at discharge from hospital, change from one organisation to another, and. Um, I don't think integrations... We all want seamless care, and organisations don't matter terribly much in that if we get it. One way of getting it is put things into the same organisation, but if the, you then don't pay enough to do it, you create another problem. So certainly I think that some vertical integration would help, but but the elephant in the room is we're not going to integrate with social care, and that, I think, is where... We, we may have some of the biggest problems. I, I think, although we have good people working in social care in my area, that that's where I fa find it most difficult. So I, I think this is a perennial problem. And how's that been in Torbay? Because obviously you have joined up services in a fairly limited way because it's community health and social care down in Torbay, isn't it? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, Not GPs or social housing or Yeah, no, it's, it, was, uh, um, uh, it was in the, in the days of... of what was called Torbay Care Trust was um, sort of integration between um, uh, adult social care uh, and um, community services, and so, so the care trust really w the, the the budget was given to the care trust, and the care trust actually ran um, social care. Uh, alongside the community community services, which meant that actually, if somebody needed discharge from hospital, um, you could actually organise that in a much more joined up way that, than than uh, if you are having the problem that well, actually, our social care budget is running out, um, and therefore we're going to limit the number of people that we provide this amount of um, you know um, home care or or, or or residential placement or whatever. Um, it did mean that there had to be some flexibility in terms of the way resources shifted between those two, but actually, if by actually giving health some health money to social care, um, if you can put it like that, you can actually achieve better health outcomes for people 
why do you have a problem with that? I, I, I really don't have a problem with that. Uh, that might be very controversial to some, uh, but I think if, if, if again, we, we use as a focus what is the best outcome for patients, then actually is it, is it relevant where that comes from? If, it, if what they need is a social care input, why should that be any less important or... Sorry, I think until until Bay, you've had um, 30% fewer acute hospital admissions than the regional average as a result of that integration. So it begs the question whether promoting integration might make some acute trust financially unviable. I mean, Kate, I don't know whether you want to come in on that. I mean, yes, I guess there is a a risk, as with anything, that uh, going forwards with if some services or, or aspects integrate, that will have... Uh, negative impact on others and then one of the things that we're also looking in great deal detail at is about continuity of service and um, it's um, services not institutions and so I think I mean having kind of sitting here I was doing a bit of reflecting just then in terms of some of the discussion I think and not to kind of tie it back to the beginning but I think there will be quite some significant change and I think part of the challenge is that we just don't know what it's going to look like um, and it kind of ties back to the first question about, you know, will there be less less uh, hospitals going forward? But I think um, there's a there is, as with everything, the balance. I mean, you mean you're, you're doing this, aren't you, in the Whittington's? Yes. You, you talked about hospitals being pit stops to fix exacerbations of long-term conditions that are mostly managed in the community by multidisciplinary teams. Yes, um, well... I want to come back to the point that Derek made about, um, or, or Kate actually, about the 30%, which uh, headline of uh, reduced uh, admissions in Torbay because of the health and social care integration. But nice I think sense. that what I've heard is that Derek said that in, in that part of the world, they have eight community hospitals. Mm. So, when, so I think that you have to look at the totality of the span rather than just the headline of emergency admissions and so on. If I look at where the Whittington Health is, we are integrated with two, uh, well, we have two community services, but we are also integrated with Islington Social Care. So when I go onto the wards, I could immediately see the differences between residents who come from Islington or residents from, who come from Herringay, um, case control almost. And, and we do get a better, better transition and better discharge because of the pool budgets with, with social care. So that's certainly, I think, a, an area that health in going forward have to look at and we're going to explore that with uh, Herringay as well. I want to come back about uh, competition, if I may. Just, a, just one comment, which is um, about the transaction cost. Um, as more work goes out to tender, we have to spend a lot of money bidding for services. Mm-hmm. Now, every service line, I say, can I please have a business case manager? So this is just going to get out of hand. And I think that we have to think about the balance of competition where necessary, where you have intransigent com- providers who refuse to change, or, or quality is poor, or and and in the first instance there should always I think be collaboration just to reduce the transaction costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you wanted yeah, to come in. I, I wanted to come back on a phrase you used about making hospitals financially non-viable, and I thought that's so. With great respect, I think health speak because if I've got a smaller volume, but you want me to provide the service, mm-hmm. you got to pay me more. Now. If you say, I won't pay you more, mm-hmm. then you'll make my service non-viable. And then one of two things will happen. Um, my patient, your patients won't be served, so I don't think you'll be able to do that. So you will have to should pay me more. But if you insist that you don't, then we have a monopoly buyer forcing someone into administration. Or you say, well, that's okay, you can close because patients can go next door. And that's fine. So I think we should say, if there's an alternative... 
then sorry, you'll become non-viable. But does that matter? Or if there isn't an alternative, please let's not have this shibboleth of a national tariff. I mean, if I uh, want to go to the small corner shop, I recognise it will cost me more than if I go to the Tesco megastore. But I might be willing to pay that differential. And I, I think we need that more differentiated, discriminated thinking. Nigel, did you want to come in? No, I'd, uh, no, I would agree with that. I mean, the the model that Yimin described about what the hospital would look like is much hotter, much more like a high yeah. dependency unit. That would be expensive, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and it would be more exp- certainly more expensive than what we run now. But it would be hopefully smaller. And actually, the funny thing is, if you could reduce admissions by thirty percent or bed days by thirty percent, that's a big enough chunk to allow you to completely redesign the way the system works. The problem at the moment is many of the community initiatives allow you to shut a four bed bay. Mm-hmm. Which is, to be frank, of no use to anybody, um, because uh, you, can, you may be able to save a hundred thousand pounds worth of nursing, but there's still another four hundred, five hundred thousand pounds of overhead which is uncovered. So you've just basically moved the cost around the system. Very often, uh, exploiting what is really just an artifact of accounting practice to say, "Oh, it's cheaper in the community." Well, it's only—it's not. not actually. It's not. Uh, you're just not—you're not really doing the numbers right. Um, yes. It's probably about the same price, but you're still paying for the rest of the hospital. So a thirty percent change allows you to uh, to we used to say when I did this type of economic evaluation uh, you have to be able to shut the ward I've changed my view on that really you need to be able to close the building um, and hopefully the site um, uh, at which point big costs start to come out and the problem at the moment is to quote Jennifer Dixon from the Nuffield Trust many of the uh, admission diversion and other schemes we've done have been homeopathic in their um, mm-hmm. effect and or at least quite small in their scale it might be worth touching on here some of the political difficulties of, of making some difficult decisions. You, you talked right at the beginning about obstetric hospitals. Yeah, well, see, I think the evidence, that we, the evidence for the things that you men and others have mentioned around uh, 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 all due respect, yeah, neonatal intensive care, for example, or uh, vascular surgery, there's very good evidence at central, and cancer, there's very good evidence centralising these makes yeah. difference. Uh, we're entirely missing the evidence on... Um, uh, on general medicine and to be honest the obstetric uh, one is just an artifact of the way that we happen to staff our hospitals um, we have very high paid consultants trained to a very high level it's great uh, france germany do it differently and do you know what they have better outcomes too um, more doctors uh, certainly um, uh, not paid as much trained to a good level not necessarily to the high, to, you've still got the, the, the very well trained high, uh, high level doctors but uh, there's more escalation uh, there's, a, a, there's more of a tiered career structure and this allows you some different solutions and I think it's just a bit, a bit of a danger of us driving our service models to fit the profile of medical staffing that we happen to have created mm-hmm. rather than as we have with in, uh, in general medicine started to say look actually what we need is a different type of doctor with some different skills so I think uh, and I'm particularly worried about that in obstetrics um, and this, this comes back to some of the nutty human factors we talked about at the beginning so things like how do you get 24-7 working off yeah. the ground yeah even if it's not quite 24-7? Yes. How do you mobilise specialists into the community? How I, do you get more yeah. generalists? Well, I, I really like Nigel bringing up this because I think the elephant in the room, certainly where I'm, I, from where I am now, is actually the medical workforce. They, are, they, they work in a particular way because they have always worked in a particular way. And, and in order for us to go forward, when I look at the numbers, um, 
I think uh, many DGH will survive if the most expensive resource and the most expert resource, the doctors, work differently. And what, what, when, I, when I say what, what do I mean about work differently, it means you don't have an ology for you know, whatever specialists. Um, we need more generalist specialists mm-hmm. yeah, who takes on more care. We need them to work different hours, not just nine to five, actually shift work so that we can provide the same service seven days in a row. We want them to work more in teams, not singularly so that they, don't, they look after the whole team's patient, mm-hmm. not just their own, and so on and so on. And I can go on. And this is the major cultural change that we have to get them engaged in. Fergus, how is your division coping with some of these issues? Okay, they're the, the fairly resistant to it, as you might imagine, because it's much more convenient to know that you're going to work from 9 till 5 or 8 till 6. But I, I think having realised that medicines, the environment's changed, they're now fronting up to or accepting that they're going to have to change their working pattern and not everyone's going to start at the same time and everyone finish at the same time. At least it'll make parking easier in the hospital, that's the first thing. Um, so but it, it, there is resistance but there's acceptance and that will enable us to spread the workload and the patient activity over a greater period of time. And so that will automatically improve our healthcare as well as make it more convenient for the patient. So we are having the discussion that as we go around the job planning round once more this year, there's acceptance that it's going to change and provide six-day working. I think the idea of moving automatically to seven-day working from effectively a five-day working system would be too far, too fast. But there is acceptance. It will at least be six-day and it's probably going to be at a minimum eight till six and possibly seven till seven. So we're, we're getting there. Derek, as a GP, I mean, you're part of a clinical cabinet with secondary care um, physicians. Does this issue come up? Is this something you... Certainly something that's being discussed. Uh, I, I mean, again, I think, I think there probably is uh, a degree of resistance, uh, although I think it's being recognised more and more that this is probably the way forward. Um, it's quite difficult to, to change working practices anyway, um, and, and uh, um, uh, it's an area for discussion, let's put it that way. That, 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 I think we're also pussyfooting a little bit. It's not about working practices. It's actually about job design. Mm, it's yeah, about saying, absolutely. you know, actually not everyone's going to be a consultant. But even yeah, further than that, I mean, Kate mentioned in one of your answers that frontline care needs to change away from the stranglehold of doctors, and i.e. more nurse-led care. Yes, I, I believe that. I mean, I could go on to be horribly controversial, but it's not really a monitor position, it's more a me position, so that's probably a bit unfair. But I think, I mean, and to challenge Fergus a bit, what's the difference between six and seven days? And, you know, to, to challenge... Derek, maybe a bit unfairly, what is so difficult about saying actually things have to change? Because there are examples, as we will all know, of any change that we could probably all list a number of examples where clinicians have led, led the clinicians, I mean medical staff, have led the change and it's happened, you know, very, very quickly and, and the, you know, without ter- too much difficulty. Um, and it's the same kind of principle, but on a much on a much bigger scale. There are a number of things and system uh, tweaks that we can do, but unless the medical workforce change the way they work, and, and to be even more controversial, the colleges and the BMA in terms of their role in it, I think that we are only going to have a limited amount of success because we um, tiptoe around some of the issues and 
you know, again, to be a bit unfair on Fergus, why not seven? What is so different between... What, I mean, I obviously know the difference between six and seven. But... Fergus, can you hear this? Yeah, can I come back to that? I, I, it's not that I'm against seven-day working, but um, if you look, the shops used to really only open five days a week, then six days a week, and then limited hours on Sundays. So it's about the journey to get there. I think our lives are going to be easier, be made easier because the junior doctors' working patterns have changed, and a lot of them are now on shift work, so they're very used to having a different working pattern than the way I was brought up, and therefore they'll automatically accept that they're working weak and their working patterns are different. Um, so I, I think we will get there, but I think going from, effectively, the majority of the service provided five days a week to seven days a week is too fast, and actually will be more resistant than if we do it in a staged fashion. Jan, is this a nut you've tried to crack in your trust? Um, not, not in any dramatic way. I'm, uh, I'm not foolish enough, in my opinion. <laughs> um, I, I think we're not being realistic. Uh, doctors' working arrangements you know, are negotiated nationally. We're in BMA House, for God's sake. Uh, you know, they're not going to change fundamentally and we delude ourselves. They will change at the margins and doctors are about the toughest negotiators there are. So, I mean, l- let's Sorry, not be under any... Don't be ill on Sunday. Pardon? Don't be ill on Sunday. Don't be ill on Sunday, yeah. So, uh, yeah, junior doctors have changed. Why? Not because of the needs of the service, but because those responsible for the education of junior doctors determined they should change. And our control over junior doctors and so on is actually probably less than it's ever been not to say they don't work very hard and not to say they're not very good but uh, it's a uniquely uh, possibly not uniquely unusually controlled system that we have in healthcare Um, in this country i mean the the models are different in europe yeah Uh, if you if you go to an acute medical unit in the netherlands you will see a highly qualified doctor and they will do three ward rounds a day regardless of the day of the week. Um, you know, so th- this, is, uh, we, this is another case where you just ask yourself, is the fact that we're out of step with Europe because Europe's getting it wrong? Well, America have their hospitalists. Um, I think that in the UK, the dependence on junior doctors are, are sort of the days are, are, are going. Um, we are losing juniors because fewer are being trained. And, and so I think increasingly the service will be consultant dependent or, or whatever grade there is, but a competent doctor. Uh, Kate's comment about substituting doctors with nurses. Actually, nurses are not cheaper. Yeah, I've looked into this. A good doctor, a good competent doctor is far, mm-hmm. far better value. Um, and I think the risk of saying, you know, I think that it's about training for the job. If you have a specific job, then you can train someone to do it. But if you want an all-round generalist who can diagnose and treat and so on, then and I think a, a doctor is very good value and a consultant is good value, provided they, they work the sort of flexible hours that they do. Mm-hmm. Not just Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. And I can't see why we can't roster maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you a... flexible working. You choose any five days, but you do your 40 I, hours. I agree Just... with you. and we, we need to train way more doctors in support of what you're saying because we don't have a market in doctors. And we, tra- we have far fewer doctors per head than I think probably any yes. country in the Western world. And do, do we 
say that is a given and so we have to have more nurses or do we say hey we need way more doctors I just want to be quite clear that I did not say that nurses should replace doctors that was not my point my my point in my yeah, notes sure. was about how we have to look at the different workforce and my point was about the medical staff but also also the nursing staff as a standalone in terms of the qualified to unqualified discussion in terms of looking at some of the other parts of the world and the and Europe and it's a, it's just different I, I just want to be very clear about that. I, I, I agree and also I think that the health service is, has been, I mean it has often been quoted that the health service is organised around the convenience of staff and I see that all the time but actually the everyone collude in this because if the consultants do twice weekly ward rounds that means there are fewer patients turned over it suits everyone just fine because every new patient is harder work. So I think that we really have to shake up the system and I'm probably getting myself into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Lily, on that point we're an hour and 20 in there so we'd like to wrap up um, with maybe one point per person, just so we don't go too much further over time. And it's that question that we asked you before, which is, you know, what what's the biggest danger for secondary care providers? What, what's the biggest mistake that they can make at this time? Um, I'll start with Kate this time, to be fair to Derek. Um, I think uh, there's two points, which is cheating, I know, but sitting back and... Um, keeping your head down and not kind of embracing the change for want of a better word and then the flip of that or the kind of backup of that is not, is, is not making some of the brave decisions and brave brave changes that need to happen. Okay. Nigel? Yes, I'd agree with that. Um, there's been a tendency in the past to try and grow your way out of trouble. That's probably not an option for most of them now. Very I, succinct. I think that of all the things that are, uh, that are facing us, the change cannot happen unless the doctors buy in and support all this change. And I think that we really have to work with them and get them on board. I, I, agree, I agree with all that. I think one of the big dangers at the moment, thinking putting two failing organisations together will create one succeeding one. It usually creates one big failing one. And related to that, we must plan properly. I think there's a huge risk at the moment that planning will become very difficult, very unfashionable, and we must move away from aspirational planning to assessing risk and uh, to thinking about different scenarios as we plan. And I think we need to change the way we plan for the future. Derek? I think, uh, from my point of view, the, as a CCG commissioner, um, the biggest danger is, to use a jargon word, that um, secondary care retreats into its silo and doesn't talk to us. Um, Fergus, if... The biggest risk is failure to engage in a meaningful uh, manner with the commissioners so that we share the risk that's associated with this. Great. Thank you very much for that succinct wrapping up and thank you very much for coming today for such a, a wide-ranging discussion. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.